The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. And so today we're going to look at a promise that Jesus has for his church. In fact, this is the first time Jesus uses the word church in the Gospels here in Matthew chapter 16. And he has this amazing promise for his church that we're going to look at. Um, But first, we've got a few other things to get to before we actually get to the promise. But let me start us in um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. I'll I'll read uh, down to verse 20, and then I'll pray for us and we'll get going here. Join me in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13 says this, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be your children, the children of God. We have the right to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God because of Jesus, of his perfect life in our place, his sacrificial death in our place for our sins and his glorious resurrection from the dead. As we trust in that with empty hands, we have the right to be called the children of God, and so we are. And so for those of us who have trusted in you, we give you great thanks and praise that you have made us a family, that we are the church, your people called together, called out from this world and called to belong to you. And now as we look at this passage of scripture, Holy Spirit, I invite you, I plead with you, in fact, to come and fill me and empower me that I might rightly divide this word so that your people will be encouraged and edified, that you would bring transformation to us. And more than anything, Lord, that as we walk out of these doors, that we would walk out clinging to Jesus more tightly than we did when we walked in. We ask this all in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. Now, um, I don't know if you know this, but Matthew chapter 16 takes place right after Matthew chapter 15. And math, yeah, I know, shocker. And then 15 takes place right after 14 and so on. And so when we come into a book like this in the middle, right, I mean, it's 28 chapters, we're in chapter 16, uh, we, we lose some context. So, so let me just summarize briefly that Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee. Uh, he has just healed many, many people. He has just fed five, uh, excuse me, 4,000, he did feed 5,000, and then he fed 4,000 men, not including the women and children. It says later that he uh, fed the women and children as well, with some little boy's lunch, right? He just was able to to do that with scraps of food. And then as he sort of finished ministering, the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they accost him, they accost Jesus, and they demand that he give them a sign that he has come from God, Now, let me remind you, he just healed a bunch of people. He just fed 4,000 people with 
scraps of food, and the religious people now are like, yeah, yeah, but prove that you're from God. So I have to imagine that Jesus looked back at them with some sense of befuddlement or contempt in his face, and he refused to give them a sign. He refused to prove to them that he was the Messiah. He gets back in his boat with his disciples. They head across the Sea of Galilee, and then they traveled 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was Gentile territory, so um, not Jewish at all. In fact, it was more pagan territory. It was the home of the worship of the false god Baal for a season, and then it became the home of the uh, Greek god Pan, who was half goat and half man. His name was Pan. He was half goat, half man. He uh, kind of like Tumnus, I guess you would say, right? This is sort of the god that they worshiped there. And then it became the home of the worship of Caesar, so the, 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 the town had just been renamed Caesarea Philippi. All kinds of wickedness, all kinds of detestable practices that I cannot name in church were practiced there. Uh, child sacrifice, all kinds of gross immorality. And you might be asking yourselves, well, why would Jesus bring his disciples there? <laughs> like, hey, come with me, get away. Let's take a church retreat to Las Vegas or Bourbon Street in New Orleans, right? Let's get away to where it's quiet. Funny, right? Okay, so, um, so here, here's the thing. I think there, there are at least two reasons why Jesus would have done this, one of which uh, I'll get to later. The other one, the first one is, because it's a predominantly pagan territory, predominantly non-Jewish territory, Jesus is relatively unknown there, okay? Uh, he can go there with his disciples and not be accosted. You, you know, you read in the Gospels times where the crowd was pressing in on, on him so much that, that his disciples could barely even breathe. And so he needs to get away. He's got to teach them some things. And so they remove themselves and they go to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And there's another reason, which I think is more important, which we'll get to in a little bit. But nevertheless, he gets away with, with his disciples. Verse 13 says again, when they, when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist or Elijah, others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay. So if you're a note taker, you can write this down. The first point here is a great question. Jesus asks a great question. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, when he's, he's with his disciples and he says, okay, what's word on the street about the son of man? The son of man is a title. It's a, a, a name. Uh, it comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel has this prophetic vision about an exalted human who will descend from heaven to earth and who will be judge of the earth. Now, this is also Jesus's favorite um, title for himself. In the gospel of Matthew alone, he uses it 30 times in reference to himself. Okay, but he's asking them first, what's the word on the street out there about the son of man? Because everybody, all the Jews knew about this title, this idea of the Son of Man. So they say, well, some say John the Baptist, sort of a reincarnation of this prophet, John the Baptist. Some Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, well, we know he's going to come proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus is like, yeah, okay. Um, They know that he's going to call for repentance of sin. Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They know he's going to come and demonstrate supernatural power. Jesus is like, yes, that's right. Is anyone else connecting the dots here, right? So, so he sort of turns to the conversation. Okay, let me come at this a different way. Who do you say that I am? You see, even in this passage, he's connecting himself. I am with the Son of Man. 
Who do you say that I am? Hello, McFly, right? Are the dots connecting about who I am here? And this is so important. He says to them, who do you? He's talking to the whole group of them. Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life because this question alone has eternal implications. Who do you say Jesus is? There are a lot of people, there were a lot of people even in Jesus's day who, who were a little fuzzy about who Jesus was. His own family was fuzzy about who Jesus was. They thought he was crazy. The religious people thought he had a demon. Um, other people were very confused about who Jesus was. And the same is true today. Okay? If you and I, if we, if we get done with this service and we went across the street over to Fleetwoods over here, where they have, it's like a bar slash wedding chapel slash like millennials cracker barrel country store kind of thing going on. <laughs> and we just went over there and looked through all the stuff they have for sale. And we just started talking to people and we said, hey, who do you think Jesus is? You're going to get all kinds of responses, right? Some people are going to say, well, he was sort of a myth or a legend. Other people might say, oh, he was a, he was a moral guide. You know, he had a new philosophy. Um, he was a, a spiritual teacher. You might even get someone who says he's the Christ, the son of God. I mean, I don't know. But you'll get all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. But a lot of people in our city today and around the world are fuzzy about who Jesus is. What's funny to me about the scriptures is in the, in the gospels in particular, the only group of people who were absolutely certain about who Jesus was were the demons. Mark chapter one, you don't have to turn there. Let me read this for you. I mean, this is so insightful. Mark chapter one, Jesus comes into uh, a synagogue. He's gonna, he's gonna teach He's on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and he's teaching and this guy gets up, okay? He's got a demon, he's, he's oppressed by a demon. And so this man with an unclean spirit stands up and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus rebuked him, said, be silent and, and, and called the demon out of him. And I have to imagine people in the church gathering were like, Jerry? Like, what happened to Jerry? You know, because like, he was just a guy who came to church. And then he stands up and he's got this demon and, he, and the demon knows exactly who Jesus is, the Holy One of God. Now, if, if you take seriously the teachings and the claims of Jesus, you must come to the conclusion, as C.S. Lewis did, that he can't just be a good moral teacher and that's it. Because Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Multiple places. He claimed to be the son of God, the son of man. He claimed to be the great I am. I mean, he made ferocious claims about his divinity. And so you cannot say, well, he, I, I, I appreciate his moral teachings, but I don't think he's the savior. You, he doesn't give you that option. C.S. Lewis would say, you either say he's a liar because he is claiming things that are not true, which makes him not a good moral teacher because he's, you know, lying. Or he's crazy. Lewis says, on the par with someone who would call themselves a poached egg. A lunatic who shouldn't be trusted. Or he's Lord. 
to embrace part of who Jesus says he is, but not the other part. Like he, Jesus himself does not give you that option. So again, who do you say that Jesus is? The most important question you will ever answer because it has eternal ramifications. A great question that Jesus asks. Now, Peter is going to answer, of course, right? Because Peter always speaks up. Look at verse 16 with me. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar just means son of, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So after a great question posed by Jesus, we now have a great response from Peter. So Peter speaks up. Not a surprise, Peter's always the one who speaks up. He speaks first. Usually, he puts his foot in his mouth. Uh, but this time, he actually gets it right. And so when Jesus says, who do you, who do all of you say that I am? Peter, as the representative of the disciples, says, you are the Christ. Now, if you're new to church, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? And H is not his middle name. Uh, probably just pull that out of your vernacular, you know? Um, it's a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. It means the promised one. This savior and deliverer that from the earliest pages of the Old Testament is promised to come to renew, to restore, to redeem, and to, um, to fix the brokenness that is in the world. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer. And then Peter goes a step further. Not only are you the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Okay, unlike here in Caesarea Philippi where they have all these uh, shrines set up to all these false gods in this place, you actually are, are the, there's a living God and this living God sent his only son and he's the promised one and that's who you are, Jesus. You have come down to us from above. And, and Jesus, upon hearing this declaration, says, great job, right? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He uses his full name. So they have last names, really. They just called him son of whatever the, the parent's name was, right? So he uses this to give gravity to the situation. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. It's like when your mama calls you by your first middle and last name when you're in trouble, <laughs> Right? Except this, Peter's not in trouble. He's just giving gravity to the situation. You, Simon, son of Jonah, yes, you got it right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But it has been granted to you by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you might be a smart guy, but your deductive reasoning did not lead you to this conclusion. You didn't just look at all the evidence you know, and start piecing it together like some mystery and go, you know what? I think Jesus might be the Messiah. He <laughs> says, so, no, this, this came by divine revelation. God has opened your heart to understand, to see, to believe. This has been granted to you by God above. So here's what we need to understand. If any of us in this room, if any of you listening or watching later, believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, you did not get there on your own. It has been granted to you by the Father. It comes by revelation from God himself. And, and so many of you, like we talk about this a lot here, for some of you, it was like 
a light switch, you were in the dark, and then floodlights came on. You were like, oh my gosh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. I trust in him. And then for many of the rest of you, it was like a dimmer switch. And so just over time, gradually, slowly, things became more clear and more colorful. And one day you looked around and you were like, I think I'm a Christian, right? I think I believe this stuff. It all makes sense now. It's all true. And it's because God has awakened, illumined your heart and awakened you to the reality of who Jesus actually is. If anyone believes, you didn't get there yourself. And if you've ever heard the gospel said back to you, you know it's a miracle that you believe it, right? Have you ever, like people, okay, they're like, um, okay, so you're telling me there's a God and he, had a, and, and he came as a baby. He was born as a baby to a virgin. And he was, full, he was like 100% God, but he's also man. And then, he, and then he grew up and never did anything wrong. And he just kind of laid low for like 30 years and didn't do anything. Um, and then he like was like, hey, I'm God, but, but, but don't tell anybody. And then he started healing people and he started you know, proclaiming truth. And, and he fed some people, thousands of people with like a Lunchable. And then he water skied without a boat and... And somehow the religious people got angry at that and they were like, you, you got to die. And so they nailed him to a cross and, and somehow in, in going to the cross, he died for our sins, all the stuff that we've done wrong against God. And so he'd really died and then he was buried, not in his own tomb, in someone else's tomb. But then three days later, he rose from the grave and, and he was bodily resurrected, but he could like walk through walls and stuff and made fish for his disciples and for breakfast. And then I just want to make sure I got this right, you know? And, and so then he... Um, then he taught him a little bit more, and then he floated up into heaven, and then he said, I'm going to come again on a horse with a sword and a tattoo down my leg. That's, that's what you believe. And you're like, yeah, you want to join? <laughs> we could sign you up right now, you know? <laughs> Some of you now are like, that's really what you guys believe? Well, kind of. Um, one day you look around, you're like, it's all true. It's all true. Jesus is the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3 who has come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus did come, according to Genesis 12, to bless every nation on the earth. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who was promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He was born in Bethlehem according to the promise of Micah chapter 5. He was born from a virgin according to the promise in Isaiah chapter 7. He is the son of God promised in Psalm chapter 2. He is the son of man promised in Daniel chapter 7. He brought healing according to Isaiah 35. He proclaimed good news according to Isaiah 61. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey according to Zechariah chapter 9. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, according to Zechariah chapter 11. He is the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions, died, and was buried according to Isaiah 52 and 53. He was forsaken by God, according to Psalms 22. He was resurrected from the dead, according to Psalm 16, and he has brought a new covenant, one that is on the heart and not by the law, according to Jeremiah chapter 31. That certainty, that decisiveness is a gift from above. If you believe it, it's a miracle. You are a walking miracle. Praise God. And God is still at work today in the hearts of people who woke up this morning without a clue in the world as to who Jesus actually is. And listen, apologetics have their place and arguments have their place 
but we do not argue people into the kingdom of God. We pray them into the kingdom of God. And so rather than arguing with people who do not believe what we believe, we pray that God would do what only God can do, which is to illumine their understanding and turn the lights on for them and their soul so that they can look at this same scripture and go, it's all true. And we go, yeah, I know. And I've been praying that you'd see it. Now that also means that if you're here in the room and you are kind of on the fence about Jesus and you're like, I don't know, I got some questions, I got some doubts. You can follow Jesus without getting all your questions answered. And you can actually follow Jesus and have some doubts. Because doubt is not the opposite of faith, it's actually an expression of faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. So a great response from Peter. Okay, and now we finally get to the promise. Jesus' promise. You guys with me so far? Matthew chapter, now listen, I'm going to give, let me just preface by saying, I do not have time to exegete the entire rest of this passage. I know we read through verse 20. I'm primarily going to camp out in verse 18, okay? So uh, the whole keys to the kingdom thing, like we'll get to that some other time unless Jesus comes back, but for today we're going to focus on 18, but I'm going to read the rest of it for us just to give us some context. So Jesus, here's this response from Peter, and then he says this, and I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So we see here a great promise from Jesus. He hears the declaration from Peter, and he goes, Yes. Now, his name is Simon, okay? Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus, at some point, calls him Peter, and here he declares, you are Peter. The Greek word is petros. It means stone or boulder. You know, you could think of like Rocky. He's nicknaming him Rocky. You're, you're stone. You are, okay. And then he says, and on this petros, which means bedrock or foundation, I will build my church. There's been a lot of debate over the years as to what Jesus means by calling Peter rock and then saying, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And some traditions have interpreted this as Peter is the rock. And so the church is built on, the, on Peter. And he's the, uh, Roman Catholics would call him the first pope, right? He's the leader of the church. There's the infallibility of the pope. And, and so there's this line of succession, apostolic succession from him. And that sounds great and all, except it's not in the Bible. And um, in fact, I think if the Catholics had had a Bible that people could actually read for the first 1,500 years, they would have read a little further in this passage and realized that that's not true. Because when you read five verses down from where we are, verse 23, uh, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He went from leader to Lucifer in like five verses. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like he can't, Peter is a broken, fallible guy just like you and me. Uh, Paul has to rebuke him in Galatians 2 for being a racist, okay? Like, he's not our guy. Like, he's a great guy. He's a broken guy. He is not the foundation of the church. Now, other people might have said, okay, Jesus is the rock, okay? Which, in some senses, he is the rock of our salvation. But according to this text, he's also the builder of the church. I will build my church. And then Ephesians 2 tells us he's the cornerstone of the church. So perhaps it's Peter's confession 
the declaration of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the, the son of the living God, on which the church is built. When you go to Ephesians 2, you see Paul saying, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not them themselves, but their declaration. You see, the prophets proclaimed that the Messiah would come, that the Christ would come. The, the apostles explained from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. We see that in the book of Acts. Paul would come to the Jews and he would explain from their own scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. So that foundation, the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Christ, the Messiah, that's probably what Jesus means, although I think he can have multiple meanings. And I want to give you some context to the place of Caesarea Philippi that actually might demystify this passage for us, okay? In Caesarea Philippi was a cave with a huge mouth, and from this cave flowed a spring, and it was a large spring, very deep, and, you know, as water would sort of billow from the bowels of the earth through this um, spring, and it met up with another uh, water source, actually, uh, this spring was the, the source of the Jordan River. Um, this warm water at certain times of the year would, would hit the cool water and steam would sort of bellow up from the mouth of this cave. Now, as I said, the water was very deep there. The locals thought it to be bottomless. And so this mouth of the cave in Caesarea Philippi came to be known as a portal to the underworld or the gates of Hades, okay? Where they thought the demons wintered in the underworld. So they'd be out here and then they'd like go under for the winter, and then they'd come back out, okay? When they saw the steam, that's when they knew the, the gods were released. And so that was known as the gates of Hades or the portal. Think of like uh, Doctor Strange or the Avengers, you know, like a portal to the another dimension. That's what they thought. And, and that because this water was so deep and they thought the gods lived there, they would make sacrifices. They'd throw kids into the water and drown them as a sacrifice, and they would do all kinds of detestable things. At the mouth of the cave was this big rock outcropping, okay? And uh, this is where they would practice their religion. They had shrines set up to these, uh, to these false gods. So, then they built temples, okay? And here's where they would practice all kinds of detestable acts, all kinds of immorality, all kinds of sacrifice was made to these false deities on this rock outcropping by the gates of Hades. So Jesus comes with his disciples to the place where all hell is literally breaking loose. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And, and then I think he points to the mouth of the opening of the cave and says, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. It seems like the world is getting crazier and darker week by week, doesn't it? And it's easy for us as believers to get all twisted up because, I mean, just last week there was a shooting in Nigeria, 50 believers, 50 Catholic church, and uh, 50 people were murdered, worshiping in that church. Um, the things that common sense say are like true and right, the culture's now calling wrong, and the things that common sense say are wrong. Culture's now calling right. It's all upside down. Even in our own city, uh, Mountain Area Pregnancy Services was just brutally vandalized the other day um, because they try to help women not pursue abortion um, from a Christian perspective. I mean, there's, 
There's so much in this world that you're just like, what is happening? And it feels, I mean, more and more people think that faith and religion are actually harmful to society. Even people within our own faith are deconstructing and, and, and bringing all kinds of accusations against the church, some founded, by the way, and I think some unfounded. And so there's all this darkness that seems to be creeping in and creeping in and creeping in, and we feel like, what is happening? Where, where is all of this going? But listen, we don't, we don't need to fear or lose hope because Jesus made a promise. He made a promise. And the darker the world gets, the brighter the light of the gospel in the church will shine. It's inevitable. Every place where, where powers that be, uh, governments and authorities and states have tried to push the church down and squash it, it has buried deeper roots and grown more fervent and more fruitful. Okay? The Roman Empire tried to stamp out the church. Where's the Roman Empire today, friends? Oh, that's right, it doesn't exist. Where's the church thriving? You think of China, you think of Muslim countries, you think of every place where oppression has tried to squash the church and it just keeps springing up. It's like a dandelion. You know, you blow it to like, and it just goes everywhere. And then there's dandelions in your whole yard and you're like, son of a, you know, it's like, that's it. And when the broken cisterns that this world have to offer dry up, where do people go? They come to church. And they expect to find God here. And they expect to be helped here. And that expectation is right. So we have a very high calling to put on display imperfectly, but visibly, something of the glory and the mercy of our God. And the church, Jesus promises that the church will triumph. This church, we'll see. All you have to do is read Revelation like one to three and Jesus's words to local churches. And it will become evident that a prevailing church cannot be made up of distracted, even well-intentioned, busy, half-hearted, or ambivalent people. Jesus will not allow it. He gave everything. He gave his very life for his people who are his church. He will not allow us to be lukewarm and half-hearted in our devotion to him. Um, one of the most frightening passages to me in all the Bible is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, when it says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Now, a lot of people interpret that as an evangelistic passage. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you just open your little door and let him in and he'll save you, and that would be great, except that's not what it's about. Jesus is speaking to a church and he's knocking on the door of the church and asking if he can come in, which means the church went about its business, having gatherings and doing Bible studies and serving the poor and doing all these things, and they didn't even notice that Jesus had left them. That's scary to me. He will not allow his church to be filled with people who are ambivalent, who are half-hearted. Um, maybe another way to put it is this, Jesus refuses to be ornamental. 
If he is not everything to us, then he is not anything to us. And so, listen, um, I've, been, I've just been stirring on these questions. If you're new here, this isn't geared towards you, of course. If you are a member here, this, I'm not gonna, I, my intention here is not to shame anyone or make anyone feel guilty. Um, that's not what we do here. Nevertheless, there are some questions that I wrestle with and I just wonder, and I'm going to wonder out loud with you. Is that okay? Okay. Where are the Christians who are willing to shake off all of the distraction and temptation and all the things that hinder us and get in the way of a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus? Where are the Christians who are willing to slow down our over busy and over committed lives and actually commit to him and treat God as if, he, as if he's actually present in our daily lives? Where are the Christians who are willing to commit to his church, to gathering with the saints in worship, not just when it's convenient, but when the doors are open? to gather together and worship in spirit and in truth, to gather together with our brothers and sisters in biblical community and practice all the one another's of the New Testament. Where are the Christians who are willing to seek the mission of God for the glory of God and the good of our city? Where are the believers who will seek first the kingdom of God? And if we will seek him, if we will seek him, he will meet us here with even more grace than we could ever Imagine. But a church built on convenience will never be a church of endurance. Never. So the church will prevail. The question is, will you be part of it? And I can't answer that for you. But it seems to me, and this has been leading up for many years, but, you know, after every church I know of, every church leader I know of, wrestles with the, with the post-COVID reality that people seem less full of the Spirit, less full of joy, less committed to the things of God, less committed to the church at large, and are more often than not only present when they don't have something else more pressing going on in their lives. And listen, I'm about to take a vacation. I praise God for vacation. But Jesus did not say, if you're weary, go on vacation. What did he say? If you're weary, come to me. Vacation's not going to solve your problems. You're going to take your problems on vacation. The solution to your problems is to come to Jesus and let him meet you with his grace and his mercy and give you rest for your soul that vacation cannot give you. So let me, <clears throat> let me finish with uh, reading this quote from Spurgeon. I said we got this title for the series. Um, there's a line that Spurgeon uses in his sermon, so let me, let me give you this. Spurgeon says, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, 
and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church until I'd found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. In the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and in need of all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. And so my question to you is, are you part of the family? Do you belong to that family? So as we wrap up, I'm going to put three questions here up on the screen. You can write them down as they come or uh, take a picture of the screen when they're all up, whatever's most convenient for you. And they basically come right out of our text. But first one is this, who do I believe Jesus is? Is he the Christ, the son of the living God, the savior who came and lived a life that I couldn't and died a death that I deserve and rose again from the grave so that I could be forgiven and welcomed into the family of God? Or is he just some character in a book and I don't really consider him any more meaningful than any other character in any other book I've ever read? Who is Jesus? Who do I believe Jesus is? That matters. It matters not just today, but for all eternity. Who do I believe Jesus is? Second question. Am I treating Jesus and his church? And notice I use the word and and not or. Am I treating Jesus and his church, because they are inseparable, as essential or as ornamental? In other words, you cannot say that Jesus is essential to your life if the church is ornamental. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Am I treating Jesus and his church as essential or as ornamental? Supplementary, when it's convenient, when I have time, that kind of thing. Okay? That's what I mean by ornamental. Someone's calling me. I'm busy. Um, And the third question is this. How does Jesus' promise to his church strengthen and encourage me in light of whatever I am facing? Some of you are walking through a living hell right now, but Jesus has promised that hell will not prevail over his people. So where do you gain strength and encouragement from that promise that hell itself cannot defeat his church, his people, and and let that encourage you and give you strength? You are not alone. Whatever you're suffering through, you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the church. We will weather that storm with you, and Jesus has promised that it will not take you out. So where do you gain strength and courage from the fact that Jesus has made that promise to his church I will build my church. Every one of those words has significance. 
I will build my church and you belong to it and hell itself will not conquer it, triumph over it. All right, we'll leave these questions up on the screen for us. Um, We'll take just a couple minutes of silence after I pray, and then I will invite you to respond to the Lord through communion. Um, In communion, we are, this is for believers, those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus and have trusted in him uh, with empty hands, with with the empty hands of faith. Uh, We come remembering Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, that he purchased for us entry into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, that we belong to him and to his church. So we come in thanksgiving. We come grateful that Jesus would love us enough that the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God would descend to earth to live and die and rise again for us, that we belong to him. Uh, We come in repentance where we need to. Uh, We come in gratitude and we come full of faith. Um, The darkness feels heavy. But you know, I, I look at that promise in Revelation when it says, there will be no need of sun for he will be our light. Darkness cannot overcome the light. And so we come in faith. If you're not a believer, you can just stay in your seats. As you make your way back to, um, by the way, gluten-free wafers, wine, juice, do whatever your conscience allows there. Um, if, as you make your way back to your seats, there are, um, there's uh, boxes there if you want to give financially. If you are a guest here and want to be known, you can fill out your Connect card. If we can pray for you in any way, fill the backside of that Connect card out for prayer requests. You can drop it in those boxes uh, and then band's going to come and lead us in a couple of songs. I'll have a couple of announcements, and then we will get out of here. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for uh, these six weeks as we've talked through uh, what the church is and what you call the church to be. Lord, we desire to be a vibrant, life-giving community of faith. You did not call us to slightly Christianized mediocrity. And so shake us from the malaise of whatever is is encumbering us and help us to become the people that you have called us to be, people who cling to Jesus with all our might and who are full of joy in your presence by your spirit. And because of that, we love one another and we go out into our community declaring peace and healing and the good news of the gospel. And Lord, would you increase us? Would you strengthen us? Would you unify us? Would you grow deep roots of faith in this community? And would you add to us those who are being saved day by day for your glory and for our good? We, Lord, as we respond now, just meet with us. Let us do business with you. And would you be kind to us now as we respond? Would you be honored and glorified as we repent, as we trust in you, as we take communion, as we give, as we sing? Uh, We ask this in the name of Jesus and pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.